0: Now back to stand up with Pete Dominic on Indie SiriusXM 104. All right, hour three, and we are going to uh, have a fascinating conversation. I can assure you. As long as I'm involved as little as possible, this should be good. We'll learn a lot about constitutional law, about courts, about their roles, about uh, specific issues that courts deal with, and and uh, of course uh, a lot about uh, the new. Burger King com- uh, competitor for the McRib. There'll be a lot of talk about that as well with our next few, two guests, or maybe not, depending on how things go. Uh, we're joined regularly by our good friend, uh, the author of the book Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and His Justices Are Not Judges. He's a, fir- he's a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University. Uh, Eric Siegel, uh, good day to you, sir. How are you? I'm good. You suggested that we have uh, other points of view on the program. You suggested that we uh, invite uh, our other guest, who's an expert uh, on these issues. He's a professor of law at George Mason, George Mason University School of Law. He writes the uh, Volokh Conspiracy blog, uh, and his forthcoming book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, comes out in the fall. And we're very happy to have him joining us for the first time. Ilya Soman. Uh, Ilya, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So did I pronounce that right, D. Volok? Did I say uh, that yeah, right? Volokh. Yeah, Volok. yeah. I've, I've been to your blog many times, but I've I've never – uh, I've never known how to pronounce it. I, I haven't paid enough attention to the to, the, the name. Explain um, to our uh, our audience what you write about uh, at your blog and why it's called The uh, Conspiracy.
1: Uh, it's called The Conspiracy, Sue because the founders of it were the Volick brothers, Eugene and Sasha Volick, who are both law professors. So they decided to call it The Volick Conspiracy. Uh, and but it's not
0: 9/11 it. truth and stuff. Just not to. No. Well. <laughs>
1: I, yeah. Yeah, uh, me uh, we, we try to write about the truth, but not that kind of truth. Hopefully, <laughs> um, um, Sasha Volok teaches at Emory University, which is
2: three minutes from my house. I've had dinner with the Volok brothers. Um, they're both brilliant constitutional law professors. When they have dinner together, all hell breaks loose. Let me just say that.
0: Wow, yeah. What a it, what a humble brag that was. <laughs> I know the Volks. They live near me, and we dinner from time to time. Well, we I'm just saying,
2: them, when they have dinner together,
1: you have to be on your toes. That's all I'm saying.
0: Uh, uh, Ilya, do you know them as well?
1: Yes, I do. I've I've known Eugene for about 15 years, and uh, Sasha for a little
0: bit less time than that, dope. And they themselves have a, a, a sibling uh, issue. That they disagree on on uh, important issues. Some, yes. Yeah. That's interesting. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for those
2: Eugene, days. Eugene was a law clerk for Justice O'Connor, and I've written – is that right, Ilya O'Connor? And yes. many, many times I've written that Justice O'Connor uh, uh, violated the rule of law in most of her decisions. So Eugene and I are friends, but we disagree on virtually most issues.
0: What's it like, Ilya, being – because I've gotten to know um, Eric Siegel pretty well, personally, uh, unfortunately. And <laughs> – uh, I kid. I love the man and his whole family. But what, what I have learned a lot about like your world because of my friendship with him um, as a constitutional law scholar as a, and and as a professor. Do you do you, How often do, do does it become personal with your colleagues? And I'm not insinuating that it, that it does with Eric, but it, I, I would imagine that it that that it can so easily be very divisive, even at your own even at your own uh, institution, much less others, especially with you know your blog and people take. I mean. I love the idea of what you guys do and debate and argue and discuss and have conversations about these important legal issues. But does it become personal ever? You know, in every profession,
1: sometimes people act like jerks or do stupid things. But in general, uh, I think it isn't personal. I think it's about the issues.
0: All right, well, let's see if we can't make this very personal between the two of you and <laughs> end up hating each other. Um, um, Steve, I one wa- thing
2: you should know about it, Ilya's answer to that, though, I think I, wanna, I, think I just want to say one thing about that.
0: Um, uh, you already want to disagree? I already want to disagree. Uh,
2: George Mason Law School, which is a really fine law school, mm-hmm. um, it is known as a school, I think, Ilya, that recruits and is proud of its, I want to say, law and economics and conservative perspective on the law. Mm -hmm. So my guess is there is less arguing going on at George Mason on legal issues anyway than at most law schools. Well,
0: that's your guess. Let's Um, let Ilya tell us the truth.
1: I think there's about the same because, yes, it is disproportionately conservative libertarian, but probably not more so than the average law school is disproportionately liberal. Plus, in this day and age, we spend most of our time debating and arguing not so much with people at George Mason as with people elsewhere. Right. Uh, I think for any serious scholar, your audience is is the world, not just the people who happen to be at your institution.
0: That's a good point. Let me ask you this, uh, Ilya, first. Um, are, are you familiar with uh, Professor Siegel's uh, book, Supreme Myths, and his Absolutely. view on it's the Supreme Court? it's a very Court. nice book. It's a very nice book. Thank you. Uh, um what what is your view of of the supreme court and 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 its justices because you know the subtitle of his book pretty much explains uh, professor Siegel's view he doesn't think the Supreme Court is a court uh, and he doesn't really think that its justices are are, are are judges. He always calls them nine lawyers in robes um what What is your view of the Supreme Court?
1: I think he's partly right, but partly wrong. I think there's no question that the justices are sometimes influenced by their ideology. I think it cannot be otherwise in a world where they're appointed by a political process appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and so forth, and where many of the issues they deal with are politically charged. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are many decisions they issue which cannot be explained simply by their ideologies, and I think most, if not all, of the justices do care about legal reasoning uh, and do at least try to uphold the rule of law, although obviously, in my view, as an Eric's, I think they uh, don't always succeed, and I think obviously some degree of political bias is probably inevitable in their work. But can I respond quickly to
2: that? Yeah, yeah. Um, my
1: argument there were there were a
2: group of scholars in the 1930s called the Legal Realists and a group of scholars in the 1980s called Critical Legal Scholars who took the position Ilya just described to me, that, that I believe the court is, is, is full of political ideology and values and that's all it is. That's not my thesis. Um, it really isn't. My thesis is they're not judges because they don't take prior positive law seriously. We expect judges to look at text and history and tradition um, and precedent, and that will leave them with choices, but they should do their best to reach their result by looking at those materials, and then sometimes they have to make their own personal choices. My position is the court doesn't care at all about those four sources. Now, when they explain their decisions, they say they care, but in fact, they do not. And in my book, I give 30, 40 examples of major Supreme Court decisions where they either ignore a prior case or they distort a prior case, or even worse, they ignore clear text. Well, in the I,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm not my and I'm, I'm um, very new to, to all of this, almost every issue that we talk about, Ilya, but, but like I... To me, I think what's most interesting about talking about the, the issues that you guys talk about every day uh, at any level, but especially with the Supreme Court, is, is this idea of precedent and, and and you know taking a look at this case that we're taking a look at right now and, and in relation to what judgments have been made on similar issues in the past. Um, what do you think of what Eric just said and, and how important do, – do you agree with that and, and, and do, does the Supreme Court not take into consideration – Uh, What what has done with decisions that have been made in the past?
1: Uh, I again, I think he's partly right and partly wrong. Uh, Sure, you can easily find cases where the Supreme Court ignores precedent, ignores text, ignores other traditional legal materials. But there are also many cases. I would argue the vast majority of those they decide where those kind of materials are crucial. Moreover, I think it makes sense that the highest court in the land would be somewhat less bound by precedent than lower courts are because they're ultimately the only ones who can correct a wrong precedent uh, of their own. Lower courts are bound to obey Supreme Court precedent, but the Supreme Court itself at least sometimes uh, has to correct previous mistakes that it made, uh, so it makes sense for them to be a bit less constrained by precedent in lower courts, but I do think precedent does matter to them, particularly if it's a long-established precedent that a lot of people are relying on. Well, I feel like uh, well, we, I would we, ask.
2: I would ask Ilya Then, I, I think I can make the. I case. sense
0: a trap being set.
2: I, no, there's no trap. I'm, I'm uh. curious what his opinion about. I'm always. I'm curious what his opinion about this is. In, in virtually every area of litigated constitutional law issues, whether we're talking about the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the Commerce Clause, whether we're talking about the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments, which I'm not an expert on, but which I, I, I know something about, whether we're talking about the 11th Amendment, whether we're talking about um, uh, individual rights, uh, the court has reversed itself in every single area. I mean, let's not forget that Brown overturned a case that was you know, 60 or 70 years old. Let's English, not forget not overturned. That, that, that commercial speech was once never protected and now it, uh, at all, and now it's protected to a significant degree. Campaign finance reform, the same thing. Uh, abortion, the same thing. So I guess what I'm asking you is, if, it's, if I'm descriptively correct that in virtually every area the court has changed its mind over time, then I'm wondering what role you think precedent plays.
1: I would say in virtually every area that you mentioned, there are also some precedents that have lasted for decades for a long time, and also some precedents uh, that at least some of the justices probably believe were wrong when they were decided, but are not going to uh, overturn today because the precedent is too well-established. I think the court has been around for over 200 years, and over that time, you're going to accumulate some reversals of precedent. Uh, Maybe some of those reversals were unjustified, maybe not, but uh, I think it's also clear that there are some very important continuities. Even in Brown, which you mentioned, the court was very careful to distinguish Plessy versus Ferguson rather than overrule it they said Plessy perhaps was right when it was decided in 1896 but now they said well we have new evidence which suggests that today conditions are different uh, and therefore we can in effect distinguish it ironically it's not even clear that to this day the court has explicitly said that Plessy versus Ferguson is overruled though of course in practice they wouldn't base it so, so Pete on
2: it. you may have been right there was a, a half a trap there um, So this is why why the court is not a court. The reason why every judge in the country follows Supreme Court precedent is because they have to. They have a duty to. Now, some don't, but that means they're not doing their job correctly. The Supreme Court only follows Supreme Court precedent when it wants to. I think Ilya would agree with that. When the court does not want to follow its precedent bad enough, it doesn't have to. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's not what courts do. That's the difference. The difference is I, uh, I clerked for several judges. I think Ilya clerked for, for a judge. Um, and my judges took Supreme Court precedent a, a, as, a, as a binding decision they had to follow, even if they strongly disagreed with it. And, and that was part of their constraint. They couldn't do what they thought was best. They had to do what the Supreme Court told them they had to do. The Supreme Court gets to do what it thinks is best, and that's not how judges normally work, and that's my only point.
0: Well, listen to this tweet, um, and, and, and everybody should join the conversation on Twitter, and you can call as well. Don't leave me hanging here because I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, and many of you do. <laughs> uh, uh, the number is 866-994-6343. You can tweet me at Pete Dominic C underscore row 314 writes, Pete. How can we be sure the Supreme Court, quote, ignores previous law versus didn't see it your way? Sounds like Siegel is a sore loser. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not it's a good kind of question. Spo- Ignoring previous law versus they just didn't see it the way that you're seeing it. Yeah.
1: Can, can, I, can I just comment on that a little bit? Yes, I mean, of course.
0: Only of if all it's all to criticize and the attack, Eric.
1: Ken does have the power to reverse its own precedent. Uh, yeah. It just can't reverse higher court's precedent. Second, I think... Obviously, there's a different role for the highest court because there's no other court above it, but that doesn't mean it's not a court. It just means that uh, it has a, a different role and is not uh, bound by a higher authority in the same way. Uh, but also, by the way, it doesn't mean that they aren't significantly constrained by precedent given that it's a practical matter. There are some precedents which are very uh, heavily established and that the court cannot overrule without paying a very serious a political price, even if, in principle, uh, as a matter of legal theory, they could overrule it if they wanted to.
2: Well, let me ask you, let, Leah, this question. Let, let's say we're setting up a new system, and we have nine judges, and their instructions are the following. We want you to make sure that political actors in our country uh, don't treat anybody unequally, and don't deny anybody any important rights. And those are the only instructions you have. That's it. That's what the Equal Protection Clause says, and that's what either the Ninth Amendment, the Privileges of the Immunities Clause, or the Due Process Clause says. The government has to be equal, and the government can't deny fundamental rights. And then we say you have life tenure, so you can never be fired. You have your job for life, no matter what. And your decisions, decisions are functionally unreviewable. You, you, you know, I, technically we can pass a constitutional amendment to change court decisions, but that never, ever, ever happens and is probably not going to happen in the future. So you now have nine people who never have to worry about losing their job.
0: Well, I mean, listen, Eric on this all the time, Ilya. The idea that, that that the way that we appoint our Supreme Court justices and the fact that they have lifetime tenure, do you, do you agree with the way that the system has been set up?
1: Uh, I don't agree with all of it, but I think there are more significant constraints within it than Eric suggested for two reasons. One is the appointment process constraints. If the court gets too far beyond what the rest of the political system is willing to tolerate, new appointments tend to fix that. Uh, Secondly, the court is conscious that they're dependent on the other branches of government and on public opinion for enforcing their decisions. And they know that if they go too far off the reservations, the decisions won't be enforced. Stop, Stop
2: right there. I agree with Ilya
1: that they're constrained
2: by their own notion of how much power they have. And they're constrained by politics in the sense that, let's say, Justice Roberts was concerned in the Affordable Care Act case. Right. That he did not want to see the court perceived right. as a political institution where five Republicans uh, decided that a, a Democratic president's you know, main legislation was unconstitutional. Stop right there. If that's true, that's not something judges do. See, that's my point. In other words, that's not text. That's not precedent. That's not prior law. That's Justice O'Connor's, it used to be her, now it's Kennedy and Roberts, their views on what American society can tolerate.
0: What do you think, Elia? What do you think
2: of that?
1: uh... again the the one doesn't exclude the other i think there are political influences on the court i think they also care about legal reasoning and precedent and the like as well uh... and i think by the way to a considerable extent this is true of lower courts also uh... because yes the supreme court can reverse the court of appeals but in practice there's a huge range of Court of Appeals decisions uh, which are unlikely to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Uh, and in those cases, the lower courts also sometimes take account of these political constraints and other external factors. It's not my view that politics and their personal morality or whatnot never influences the justice of course it influences them i just think that there's a bigger role for these uh other more conventional legal influences All i right. think eric allowed.
2: well when i think, it is true the lower courts definitely act politically i think is, he he understates that i think the court of appeals raises a lot of the same problems the supreme court raises but there's one huge exception and i can make the analogy very clearly If you're the associate dean and you have power for life, that's one situation, but you can be reversed by your dean, the provost, and the president of the university. But if you are the president of the university and you have unreviewable power for life, psychologically that makes a huge difference. And the Court of Appeals judges that I know, even the most famous ones, and I'm very good friends with Judge Posner, who is one of the most famous Court of Appeals judges.
0: Another I'm, humble brag. That's two. That, Who's keeping that, track? That a brag. Uh,
2: I, I'm very proud to be friends with Judge Posner. I think Ed would back me up on that. Um, yeah,
0: he's a great guy.
2: Yeah. Um, they are constrained, even if they think their case is not going to be heard by the court. The fact that it can be over time means they're not the final decision. All right.
0: Either. Well, I, I don't want to get too bogged down on that because I do. I, I want to get to a bunch of different things here, including um, Eric's insane... Uh, obsession with with, with uh, not allowing television cameras in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, but let me go to George in Pennsylvania, who is calling in, and I, I want to get the callers when they call if they've got good questions or comments. 866-994-6343. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Supreme Court. We're talking about constitutional law, and we're talking with two experts. So I need your backup. I need your help. Go ahead, George.
3: Yeah, I just want to say, you know, I hear it such reverential tones and I think most of the country just thinks the Supreme Court is a disgrace. And, and, you know, there's there's corruption. We all know they're partisan hacks. They do what they want. Uh, They're not bound by law. They're not bound by precedent. We certainly know since the year 2000 that they'll decide whatever they want to decide. The president be damned. Voters' rights be damned. I mean, they're they're basically partisan hacks. Their families are uh, enriched by their positions on the Supreme Court. They vote in favor of their friends. Let me
0: help you with your cynicism. They're all from two colleges, you know, Harvard uh, Yale. Yeah. That's right. What, what do you think? What do you think, Ilya, of of this guy's uh, it, unbelievable bitterness? Uh, because there's so many people who feel the way that uh, George and Pennsylvania feel.
1: Again, as, as I said before, I think it's partly true, but partly not. Uh, there are a lot of constraints in the court. There are a lot of ways in which they do follow precedent and traditional legal materials, and I would also note that today, as throughout most of the last several decades, the Supreme Court does actually have uh higher approval ratings than the other institutions of government. The majority of the public, I think even right now, I think something like fifty one or fifty two percent overall approves of their performance. They may be wrong to approve of it. That's a, a different question. But uh overall I think it's easy to overstate the amount of cynicism about the courts because obviously the people who are most bitter and most unhappy are the ones most likely to speak out about the court a lot. Well, not many people are gonna say, Oh, how much-
0: much, how much do they c-
1: I'm going to say that
0: I'm sorry I cut you off what was the last thing you said Elliot uh,
1: I mean, I'm just saying that the people who regularly speak out about the court are going to be disproportionately those who don't like what it's doing
0: let me just say that oh, that's an interesting point of view do you agree with that that the people who speak out against the court uh, are are disproportionately people who disagree with with the outcomes that it decides that 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 seems right to me
2: an empirical question. I, I'm not sure, probably. But what I was going to say was, and, and I'm not talking about Ilya personally here now, so Ilya, don't take this personally. Uh, in, in my book, one of the. is po- a dick. Well, hey, <laughs> what?
0: Come on. I don't know how he can't take that. Go ahead. One of the points I
2: make in the book is society relies to a significant degree on law professors to explain what the Supreme Court does. And law professors have an enormous personal stake in pretending that the Supreme Court does what does law does what what law is what's interesting is that if you pull I think Ilya will agree with this 98 percent of political scientists agree with me so those political scientists who study the Supreme Court to almost to to a person agree that law plays almost no role in Supreme Court decisions not zero role but almost no role and the court is, 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 is political, not partisan necessarily, but political in every way. The reason why law professors don't say that is because they want to guard their territory. If, if, the, if the abortion, affirmative action, and gun debates don't involve law, then why, Pete, why would you have me on the show to talk about abortion, affirmative action, and guns? Because I know about law. I don't know about abortion, affirmative action, and guns. So law professors pretend... That this is about law at the Supreme Court level, when in fact, it just so happens that the five conservative Supreme Court justices looked at history and said the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own guns and wrote a 50-page opinion that no, no person can understand who's not steeped in that history. And the four more moderate justices looked at the same history and came to a different conclusion, but all nine justices pretended this was about law when, in fact, it was about
1: politics. And, Ilya,
0: somebody and, has to stop this man.
1: So happy to do so. I think he overstates significantly both about the political scientists and about the law professors. About the political scientists, there are actually... A very significant challenge in the literature they are rising to what was for a time the conventional wisdom on the political scientists that it's all political and today much of the new literature basically says more or less what i've been saying which is that political factors matter but these other factors also matter as well uh, as for the law professors i think especially today the average law professor Is more negative and more cynical about the Supreme Court, uh, than the average member of the general public, though that is in part because the court has, uh, become somewhat conservative over the last 20 years, whereas the average law professor is very liberal, about 80 and 90 percent of us are. Uh, so I think law professors are more than willing and all the time criticize the court for being political, being biased, uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, do we have some stake in believing that traditional legal analysis matters uh yeah perhaps we do but that doesn't prove that it doesn't matter well Ilya, uh, let me say that i've gone around time time and the country for that last, has oh, hold on
0: well, then, eric go ahead Ilya.
1: And, and that doesn't prove that uh you know most law professors actually approve of the court Because clearly at least since it's become more conservative the vast majority of them do not
2: uh, Ilya, eric so is Ilya, about Ilya, to share
0: an really, anecdote this is go ahead important.
2: eric it's real important Ilya, go let ahead
0: with your it. anecdote
2: I've gone around the country for the last year at like 15 different law schools giving my talk. And the response I almost always get is, yes, the court is political, but it's not nowhere near as political as you are suggesting, which is what you're saying. Uh, mo- many political scientists would, would not agree with that. Second, Ilya is exactly right. The legal academy is about 80% liberal. And what most law professors say is we just need a new Supreme Court. We need nine Justice Brennans or nine Justice Ginsburgs or nine Justice Marshalls. Their complaint is not with how the court operates, but this particular court's conservatism. Law professors are not willing. I, I can name them. Uh, I, I can name about five law professors who are very famous. One's at Harvard, Mark Tushnet, who Ilya knows. One's the dean of Stanford, Ilya knows him, Larry Kramer. But there are only about four or five law professors in the country who accept my view that the court is not a court. And that is a distinctly minority view among law professors and a, and a
1: very, very middle-of-the-road view among political scientists.
0: All right, uh, well
1: – You can be cynical about the court, as many law professors are, without going as far in that direction as Eric does. Yes, I think I agree with that, certainly.
0: Do you think that we should allow television cameras in the Supreme Court, Ilya? Uh,
1: I think probably yes. Uh, I think it would be a useful educational function for people who are interested in the court. And I know there are various arguments against it that the justices have presented and that I'm sure Eric will present. But overall, I think it would be a good thing. And certainly, I don't believe it would cause terrible harm or lead to lawyers playing to the cameras as opposed to the justices. After all, what the lawyers want to do is win the case. Th- uh, and winning the case means trying to appeal it to the justices.
0: Do you think – Do I, I want to get both your take on this, and then we'll take a, a break and uh, or a call. Um, but this isn't have anything to do with with constitutional law. This question, but I, I just want to get your takes um, as 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 constitutional law professors, as professors as, as as smart people who understand um, you know a lot more than uh, the the vast majority of us about law and about courts. I, I'm wondering what you think of the idea that television networks like CNN and and uh, and HLN, uh, which both pay me when I'm on. Uh, I'm wondering what you think of their uh, obsession with covering these sensational trials at Jody Arias. Yesterday it was O.J. Simpson. Is, is, that, is there any importance to in, in the public's interest to covering um, those types of trials?
1: I, I think
2: actually it hurts. I think, I think it's a bad thing because I'm not a criminal law expert. I don't know if it is really is either. But I do know enough to know that 99% of what goes on in the nation's criminal courts have nothing to do with O.J. Simpson and these high-profile cases. First of all, 90 case, 90% of the cases are plea bargained. They never get to trial. And so I think non-lawyers don't realize that most tr- criminal trials, A, don't go to trial, B, aren't like this. They don't go on for weeks and months, and, and, and they're not as dramatic as this. And public defense lawyers are really terrible because they're underpaid. I mean, they tried, they're not terrible in the sense that they don't try their best, but they're underfunded. So my view is it actually hurts. Uh,
1: I think overall that's probably true. Most of these cases have very little public significance, and they're atypical cases as to whether they're bad because they're underpaid. I think that's an empirical question that is probably better put to a, uh, you know, an expert in criminal law, which I am not.
0: But do they, do they, um, do they interest you? as, as, as um, law scholars, do they, are, do you watch them for a few minutes just to, for any, other, any reason? I, I saw
2: Simpson last night for one yeah. second and changed the channel. Uh,
1: uh, I thought it was I very film. rarely do I watch them because most of them don't interest me, and they certainly have very little, if anything, to do with my work. I do think they have something to do with my work on political ignorance, where I argue that much of the public, uh, rather than being interested in actual facts about politics and policy that are relevant to major policy debates is more interested in uh, entertainment. And I think this is an example of that. Yeah. These things are on TV because they're entertaining rather than because they have,
0: you know, I wanted to, I love your work on, on political ignorance and apathy. And I'd love to talk more with you about that for sure. And i plan to get to that uh, quickly to Tony and Baltimore. Tony, you're on right now. Go ahead, Tony.
3: How you doing, Pete? Hey guys. Uh, I, I'm a I'm an attorney down here up over here in Baltimore. I'm not a constitutional law guy, but obviously I studied it. Uh, my question is, uh, I know you're you're talking about how you know precedent isn't respected or, or even worried about, but I've always been of the opinion that there is a level of judicial activism that's necessary, and and it's always demonized depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on whenever a, a decision comes up, like As far as creating law is concerned, you know, there's times that the legislature just isn't handling things or there's a complicated issue that, you know, the court has to address. And it's it's those times that I feel like if any court's going to be, you know, activist, that it would be the Supreme Court that that's appropriate.
2: But, Tony, my question to you would be, and to Ilya, um, and before I get to that, I want to say Ilya's work, Pete, on that stuff is really fantastic, on the political ignorance is really
0: Yeah, 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 I know, Um, I want to.
2: Uh, Ilya, I, really I want to
0: have him on without you on that. Okay. I, I, I think
2: you probably should. Um, Tony, here's my question to you. So let's take affirmative action,
0: okay, one of the most
2: you know, difficult on all sides. It's not an issue that anyone can say slam dunk, obvious, you know, all that stuff. When Justice O'Connor approached that issue, and she was the swing vote, she pretty much admits, I mean, you have to read between the lines, but I don't think Ilya would disagree with this, that, that she wasn't making a legal determination. She was trying to figure out what the American people would accept, how far, you know, what what kind of middle of the road solution the court could put forward that would work both as a practical matter and that the public would go along with. And that's true for a lot of other decisions the court makes. And my only point is, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I am not taking a position on whether it's good or bad. My position is it's not law, and the American people should be should then decide. Do we want a veto council, a council of elders, a council of wise people, to make decisions about affirmative action, guns, and abortion? Same thing on abortion now. The, undo, the, 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 the test we have for abortion now is a middle-of-the-road practical solution that, that Justice O'Connor, as it turns out, also came out with that, that may be right, may be wrong, but it has nothing to do with the Constitution.
1: It has uh, to do with other things. What do you think, Elia? Uh, again, as I I know I've said this several times, but I think that's partly right and partly wrong. I certainly don't think that Justice O'Connor would agree with that characterization of what she's done. Uh I do Want to address what the caller said about judicial activism? Because I think judicial activism is one of those terms that gets thrown around, but often it means very different things to different people, and often it's degenerated to the point of meaninglessness. Uh, Some people just (laughs) use judicial activism as an epithet to denounce whatever decisions they don't like that the Supreme Court has made, and frankly, I decry that because uh, I think we should talk about the reasons why those decisions are right or wrong rather than Simply saying, oh, that's activist. Some people, by contrast, say that activism is just whenever the Supreme Court or any court strikes down a law enacted by a legislature. Uh, I think that's maybe a more precise use of the term, but in and of itself, it doesn't tell us much about whether a decision was right or wrong. The question is, was the court correct in uh, striking down that uh measure, we can't simply say that just because they struck it down, that means it's wrong, unless we're one of these people uh that Eric Siegel mentioned who just disapprove of judicial review in general as Mark Teshnett does or we know Growley at the University of Texas. So uh, Ideally, it's not going to happen, but ideally, I would like to see us talk about activism less and talk more about uh, whether decisions are wrong or right, as opposed to saying, well, that's activist, and that means you know I don't have to do any more analysis. I can just say it's wrong. I, Ilya,
3: isn't, in a isn't there a role for the court to be able to create new law whenever the legislator is, legislature isn't acting or whenever there's a situation where it's very complicated? I mean, I, I feel like you know somebody has to be able to make the final decision on these things, and whenever that creates new law or goes against somebody's political persuasion, well then they cry foul, and I just feel like that there has to be some role for them to make those decisions.
2: Tony, let me ask you. Tony, let me ask you a question. You are called to Eastern Europe tomorrow to help them build a new constitution, and they want they want to talk to you about what kind of country they're going to have, and. They're going to, when we talk about what kind of court system they're going to have, we're going to bring in lawyers to figure out the best procedures for criminal trials and judicial well, trials and all that. Well,
3: there's a okay. mistake.
2: Wait, wait a minute. But when they start talking about abortion, affirmative action, and gun control, let's talk about gun control specifically. They're worried. There are a lot of guns floating around. They think it's doing a lot of harm. They think people should have a right to own guns. They're not sure. Um, and they want advice on the best balance between security and freedom. Are you going to ask lawyers? No. You're going to ask police. You're going to ask, you know, schools. You're going to ask parents. But you're not going to bring in lawyers. The same is true about abortion. The same is true about campaign finance reform. On all of these issues, why do you think, Tony, I'm really curious about this. Tony, why do you think Justice Ginsburg or Justice Scalia, whichever political side you're on, knows more about guns or has greater insight to the proper balance between gun Rights and guns. You know, but it's security. a great
0: question that, that Eric always likes to ask, and I want to get your answer, and I want to get Ilya's uh, uh, answer on, on, on how not only the question, but how he feels about the framing of the question. Uh, but Tony, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think that they necessarily know more about it, but I think that at some point there has to be somebody who makes a final decision on, on where the law is on that issue. I mean, uh, what are they going to do? Are they going to have. Well,
2: let me answer your question. For most of the world's history, In virtually every democracy, the last word is the legislature. And if you don't like it, you vote the people out. Uh Now, I think there's a a, role. Ilya, I am for judicial review. I, I think there's a role to play for the people to get together and put in their foundational document very important shared beliefs so the country is defined in a certain way. So in our case, for example, we decided it takes two witnesses for tre- i am I'm changing subjects, but not really. Our Constitution requires that to be tried for treason, there has to be two witnesses or a confession in open court, and that was a really good part of the Constitution because we were afraid of tyranny and afraid that that you know that the the equivalent to the king would prosecute people for treason. We put that in. Judges should enforce that. I agree. All
0: with right. That. So so hold on. So Ilya, what do you think of just the idea that of what of what uh, Eric Siegel is saying, which is. I think uh, that that the court intervenes too much, and that 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 there should be less involvement uh, with the Supreme Court on all of these issues, no matter what they are, uh, and more decisions being made by policy experts that that consult, uh, you know, or legislatures and 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 policymakers that consult policy experts that, that that know more about these issues. I think that's what he's always kind of trying to say. What do, what do you think about all of this? We we haven't heard from you
1: uh, for the most part. I disagree. Uh, I think. Asking do lawyers know more than policy experts is the wrong way of framing the question, although sometimes the lawyers actually do know a lot. Uh, The right way of framing it is to ask do we want an institution that, constrains the political process and forces it to respect certain rights, obey certain structural constraints and whatnot, or do we rather essentially give the political process uh, a blank check to do whatever current political majorities or current politically dominant small interest groups uh, want to do? And you mentioned looking around the world, after, over the last 60 or 70 years, most of the world's democracies actually have moved towards stronger judicial review. None, uh, with, life this reason, None with life tenure. Hold on. None with life tenure. None. Zero. Not with life tenure. That's true. But most with very long tenure, 15, Well, what
0: Well, is there a big difference to you on that, Eric? Yeah, it's have... huge. Pete, okay. it's huge. All right. You don't tell a
2: human not being right. who has a lot of power you have your job for life.
0: All right, take it easy. Chest. I mean, just, uh, just look at your heart rate, though. I I, I get concerned (laughs) with you. I don't know if you know Ilya, but Eric is older. Um, Uh, He
1: he he is older, but uh, what I would say is I'm not sure there's a huge difference between. Supreme Court justices serving for 20 years, and at the end of that, more or less being assured of a very comfortable life, even if they never work again, versus serving for life. There is some difference, but it's a matter of degree rather. than There's
2: something else going on, though, Ilya. Those countries, as a general rule, what they call these institutions is what Judge Posner calls our Supreme Court, which is a political court. In other words, you know,
1: they don't call them that. They call them, either they call them a Supreme Court just like we do, no. or they call them a Constitutional Court because there's a separate court that specializes in constitutional law. And what law. they
2: know is the Constitutional Court is political. It's not law. That's what they
0: know. That's I don't the, think
1: they would say that. They would say that.
0: Uh, um, well, that w- I don't think uh, we're going to be able to figure out the answer to that. No, um, I. And,
1: I've looked at the literature, I've spoken actually with judges from some of these other countries, what they would say most of them, not all, but most of them is more or less what I've said is that there are political influences, but there are other influences too. I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think that really is the situation both in the U.S. and in most of the other countries that have judicial review. All
0: right. Well, we've got to work in a break. Tony, great call. Thank you. Uh, and this is a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate both of you coming on and, and joining this conversation. I do want to get specific with a couple of cases and, uh, and, uh, that are currently being taken a look at or, or that you guys obviously are very passionate about, and we're going to do that after we get a break. But uh, I, I, uh, this is fantastic. Eric Siegel, Ilya Soman joining us uh, right now talking constitutional law, the role of the Supreme Court, and, uh, and I'm certainly learning a lot. hope you are as well. We'll be right back. He's no nonsense, speaks his mind says what you're thinking, and other horrible cliches. Stand up with Pete Dominic.
3: Indy, Sirius XM 104.
0: All right. We're having a fascinating conversation with two constitutional law scholars. He is a professor of law at George Mason University School of Law, and he writes the Volokh Conspiracy Blog. He's got a new book coming out called Democracy and Political Ignorance, which I can't wait to talk with him about Professor Ilya Soman, and uh, the other gentleman joining us joins us on a pretty regular basis and suggested Professor Soman uh, join this conversation today. He is Professor Eric Siegel. Uh, he's an elderly gentleman, the author of a book, Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and he's struggled his entire life with height requirements, carnivals, and fairs. <laughs> I, am, um,
2: I, am, I am neither old nor short. I am mature and medium.
0: He is. I'm young,
1: but admittedly short.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we have agreement on that. Guys, let's talk about a couple of specific cases, a couple of specific issues that we're dealing with uh, pretty currently. And one is the the issue of same sex marriage, marriage equality, gay marriage. Uh, Ilya. Um, what, is, what do you think the Constitution, how, how the Constitution deals with this issue in terms of uh, discrimination, in terms of its constitutionality, the idea of uh, one man, uh, uh, two men being able to marry, two women being able to marry? Um, wh- where, do you, where do you think uh, – what is your interpretation of what the Constitution says? And, and, and of course uh, I, I will ask you to speculate on, on how you think they will decide uh, next month.
1: Sure. Uh, So obviously this is an issue over which there's a great deal of disagreement. My own view is somewhat atypical of the two sides in that I think bans on gay marriage should be struck down, but not for the reason that is often given, which is that uh, they discriminate against gays and lesbians. I think they do discriminate against gays and lesbians, but I think the Constitution actually puts relatively few constraints on that kind of discrimination. On the other hand, I think both precedent and also a lot of history and original meaning do impose significant constraints on sex discrimination. And if you look at the way these laws work, they're actually a form of sex discrimination even more than they are a form of discrimination against gays and lesbians because who you can marry under these laws is entirely dependent on gender. So in the state where I live, this is not a proposal, but in the state. That I would, even if eric siegel and i wanted to get married we wouldn't be allowed to why the only reason is that we're both men uh if he were a woman and he was otherwise exactly the same as he is i would be allowed to marry him and so that's a very so it's- classic instance of sex discrimination and lots of precedent and also history suggests that this kind of sex discrimination can only be constitutional if at all if it Uh, satisfies a pretty high level of judicial scrutiny. And I don't think that uh, banning same-sex marriage in the way that many states do uh, would satisfy that. I don't think the state has anything approaching a sufficient rationale for it to justify this kind of sex discrimination. That's why I would decide the case if you ask me. don't know anything. It's unlikely that the justices will adopt this particular reasoning.
0: Well, I'll ask you for your prediction too, but when I just just to be clear, when you, you, you're using the term sex discrimination and gender discrimination interchangeably, it's the same thing.
1: When I use it, it's the same thing. Obviously, some people do distinguish between the two.
0: Okay, so it's not, it's not that um, they're discriminated against the type of sex you can have. Uh, you're saying they're discriminated against against uh, uh, people of the same gender.
1: Yeah, they're discriminated against people's rights are being determined based on whether they're men or women. That's what I mean.
0: Right. Uh, I can't stop. I can't get the visualization of of the two of you together, and 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 how tiny that baby would be if that were uh, biologically possible. Yeah, uh, perhaps but Eric
1: shouldn't have put that image in your head.
0: That's that's fine. I'm all for it. Whatever makes you happy, guys. Uh, I worry about uh, Eric's polygamy. wife.
2: We have a polygamy problem. I'm already married.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, me so,
1: too. But even if we weren't married, or even if we got divorced or whatnot, my point holds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> True. So, um, Eric, do, where do you where, if anywhere, really do you is, disagree? I thought, with? So this is. Um,
2: um, one of the reasons I thought Ilya would be great for the show is – as far as I know, Ilya, you're one of the few law professors who've made this argument.
1: No, but many law professors a, I, have made it.
2: I, I think it's a great argument. I think, it's exa- I think it's exactly right where I disagree. I disagree only on one corner of it, which is Ilya started off by saying he didn't think the Constitution protects gays and lesbians all that
0: much, but it does
2: protect discrimination based on gender. Well, he
0: said he – said- uh, Ilya, he, you, I think you said this type of discrimination and it's not and and you're clearly insinuating that it is discrimination, but that the Constitution doesn't doesn't um, designate this this kind of discrimination. I'm confused.
1: So you, you guys are parsing my words even more carefully than we usually parse those at the Supreme Court. <laughs> what I think we mean is two things. One is as Steve Calabresi and some other scholars have recently demonstrated sex discrimination actually is one of the things that uh, was expected to be covered by the 14th Amendment, even at the time it was enacted, albeit at that time because of different factual views about what women are capable of. it The uh, sex discrimination wasn't uh, forbidden or wasn't struck down to the same extent it would be today. Secondly, there's a lot of precedent now on the issue, which says that Sex discrimination must be subject to a high level of scrutiny. Third, when you think about it, I think this very clearly is sex discrimination, what these laws uh, are doing. Who you can marry is entirely dependent on what sex you but, are. But
2: Ilya, you don't think the 14th Amendment protects sexual orientation the way it protects gender discrimination. That's right. right yes. Okay. So Pete, so what I want, so that, that was the corner of his statement that I wanted to address because I agree with everything else. Um, I can curse on this station, right? Can I? Can I curse? Yeah, go ahead. I don't give a shit what the founders of the 14th Amendment thought. And here's the thing. Ilya does. He sincerely does. And and the law Do you, Ilya? The, yes, yeah, they yeah. Do. And the, and and the, the law not much the
1: founders as the public understanding at the time. Wait a minute. Ilya cares and Steve Calabresi cares, who would be a
2: great. No,
0: person. no, no, hold on. I think it's interesting what he just said, not as much what the founders thought, but what what people at yes. the time thought. Yes.
2: That's the same thing. That's, that's what we're talking Is it the same
0: about. thing, Ilya? Uh,
2: it's, it's not the same thing. It's not thing. the we same, but, it, but, but it's, here's it, my it's point. It's different. Here's okay. my point. Ilya sincerely cares what the people who ratified the 14th Amendment believed, and thinks that's an appropriate thing for Supreme Court justices to consider. He says that, Calabresi says that, a lot of conservative law professors, Randy Barnett says that all the time. Uh, Ilya, Randy was on the show a few months ago.
1: Yeah, um, anyway,
2: yeah. Here's what I want to say. Justices Scalia and Thomas, who are the two justices who say they care the most about that, don't care about it at all. And it is a scandal and a sham on the American people. Ilya, has Justice Thomas or Justice Scalia ever, ever, in seven or eight affirmative action opinions, ever mentioned the original understanding of the 14th Amendment? Yes or no? Uh, I think Thomas actually has a couple times. No. You Go show it to me. But Scalia uh, hasn't. In any event, Scalia hasn't. Right?
0: Oh, I want to see that debate break out on Twitter, by the way. Um,
2: so, 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 so my point is, it's all in good that Ilya cares sincerely about originalism, and I think he does, but the Supreme Court doesn't care about it. At all. If they did, Citizens United would
0: come out. Well, your assertion is that the Supreme Court um, says they care about uh, some on the Supreme Court say they care about the original uh, intent, uh, but they don't. Ilya, uh, do you you disagree with that?
1: So I think they do care, but it's not the only thing they care about. Uh, I mean, what you're looking at in the situation we're in is. Uh, in uh, an era when we're 200 years into the history, uh, there's a lot of press and there's a lot of other constraints. Uh, and obviously, I also disagreed with what he said about Citizens United since uh, the Constitution in no way distinguishes between rights that are exercised by using corporations versus rights that Why we have. Why are you exercise. talking about the
2: Constitution? James Madison would never have recognized corporations as having any rights other than those given by
1: the state. I, I disagree with that, too, especially since what we're talking about is corporations vastly different from those that existed in James Madison's time when there were no general incorporation laws.
2: Ah, so you see, that, that's, uh, uh,
1: Pete, that's
2: the move that the justices make all the time. Let's talk about Brown v. Board of Education. Everybody agrees, almost everybody agrees, that the, the people who ratified the 14th Amendment as well as the people who wrote the 14th amendment believed that segregated schools were constitutional. There were segregated schools in DC at the time, public schools, and everybody agreed they were constitutional, everybody. So how can an originalist, how can an originalist defend Brown versus Board of Education? What the originalist says, what Judge Bork used to say, I think what Ilya would say, is the facts about public schools have changed. And therefore, what they thought about
1: public schools and segregation. Well, you could isn't... say
0: the same thing about everything, exactly. the facts of everything, exactly. in terms of. So, and
1: exactly. that's what Borch said, hold but that's not what I would say. Uh, I would say that the District of Columbia is, of course, under the federal government and the 14th Amendment. Uh, the equal protection clause specifically says it applies to the states. Moreover, as scholars such as Michael McConnell and actually more recently Cal Brazy have demonstrated, a lot of the framers, the Fourteenth Amendment actually did think that uh, segregated schools at least at the state not level. The majority, by it. Not the majority. Uh, not um, the majority. I, I think actually there's a good case be made that it, uh, it was a majority. Oh, Last week, I don't think it's actually wrong to say that. an originalist can take account of changing facts because, as both liberal and conservative and libertarian originalist scholars have pointed out, uh, all of law, whether originalist or not, is to some extent applying principles to new facts. So one can hold the exact same principles, the exact same rules, but that doesn't mean uh, you don't take account of new facts. So it's not inconsistent with originalism for the court to say that the First Amendment applies to speech on TV and radio, even though there was no TV and radio in the. And East the
0: Second country. Amendment ap- applies to, you know, machine so guns. Pete, and-
1: there was a guy in 1903
2: who wrote the very first article on this topic. It's in the Harvard Law Review. Um, and, and, and I think I've been credited with – I think this is true. This is the first article ever written about, quote, the living Constitution. And it was written in 1903. It's a two-part article in the Harvard Law Review. And he said exactly what Ilya just said.
0: All right, well, we're out of time. We'll have to talk about that the next time. But, but, you know, Ilya – I'm really fascinated with the uh, with your 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 upcoming book, and so I'd love to have you on the show uh, next week to talk about uh, democracy and political ignorance, if you're available. And uh, I do not even have time to ask you about the thesis of it, but I uh, I'm I think it's the most important issue, and we can all agree probably that apathy and ignorance are are what hurts uh, us more than anything else, even on the issues that we really really disagree on that divide us. Just the idea. To me, that we that we get engaged uh, is much more important than being right. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today uh, and and uh, encountering uh, Professor Siegel and the hogwash that he spreads uh, <laughs> uh, every time. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Ilya Soman We really appreciate it. Are you on Twitter? Do I not have a Twitter handle for you? Uh, I'm not on
1: Twitter. I am on Facebook, however, and also on The Vullet Conspiracy.
0: Uh, read him at The Vullet Conspiracy. Uh, and, of course, as always, give uh, thank you very much, Eric. Uh, buy his book, Supreme Myths, and, of course, give him a follow on Twitter, if you aren't already, at ESpinSiegel. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Elliot. Uh, all right. Thank you so thanks. Yep, Bye. thank you. Um, Alfred, Chris, Melanie, my uh, producers, you guys uh, rule, as always. We're out of time for today. Be the change you want to see in the world. Stand up with Pete, Dominic. with Pete Dominic. For more Stand Up with Pete Dominic, go to SiriusXM.com slash